I'm I'm feeling it's like the seven stages of grief or whatever. So you know, add in hungry and add in horny, and then I guess you're good. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to I Don't Get It. This is a podcast about performances, or lack thereof, in Edmonton. Uh, We are proud to be part of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. My name is Fonda, and our co-host Paul couldn't join this week, but we do have a guest lined up for you. So, um, so, well, let's get started. Um, As usual, everything is canceled, including all summer gatherings of over 15 people, which means no festivals for Festival City. Hmm. So who are we now? I wonder. Um, Well, in these past weeks, we've been talking to folks who have been affected by all of the performance venue shutdowns and limitations on gathering. And our guest today is a man of many talents here in the city. He is an actor, director, designer, and playwright. Uh, He has been the artistic director of Northern Light Theatre since 2002. His curation of that company's seasons has pushed a lot of boundaries from discussing religion to body type to abortion to gender expression um, and is about to tackle ageism, too. He's won a number of sterlings in various categories, and you maybe best know him, at least in mainstream audiences, for his collaborations with Darren Hagen and Guys in Disguise at the Fringe, uh, which is where I saw this guest in one of my favorite drag roles pretty much of all time, where he played Betty Davis in Bitch Slap. Uh, Bitch Lap is about the notorious feud between Betty Davis and Joan Crawford. Uh, if you haven't seen it, um, that show does come back every few years because it is awesome. So if you ever do have the chance to see it, I suggest you do. In any case, uh, this conversation with our guest um, covers so many things from accepting this great pause and what it means um, as an artist to the effects of the pandemic on small versus large theater companies, plans for future seasons, God willing, those things happen, um, and looking at a summer without the fringe. So now for your listening pleasure, everyone, um, I would like to call for applause in introducing our guest because applauding is something that we all miss doing. So please give it up if that's available to you. your pets will will just adore you for it. Um, here is our chat with Trevor Schmidt. Hello, Trevor. Hi, Fonda. How are, how are you doing these days? What have you been up to? Well, I I'm self isolating in isolation. I'm alone. Um, we canceled our last show of the season. Um, we gathered together just as. Um, People were being told to self-isolate. We took some photos for posterity to kind of archive what would have been of that show. And since then, I've been at home alone by myself. It's it's depressing a little bit. But um, I feel like I turned a corner after about a week or two. And now I'm sort of taking the time to um, relax and, and – um, not meditate as in do meditation, but meditate on what comes next and what to do. And I'm, I'm think I'm one of the only people I know that's not really rushing towards creating content right now and getting something out on, on social media to prove that I'm alive and validate my need for attention or something. I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to take things a lot slower than that. It's kind of amazing to see like this, there was this incredible surge of output, like people were just like, I'm here, I am alive, I am creating. And then it does seem to have um, ebbed off a little bit. 
Well, I hope it does because I think that it was it was overwhelming at first. Um, I don't and and I don't judge anyone for it. Um, I'm saying I don't judge anyone for it. In reality, I kind of do in my heart of hearts. But but I also think it's like <laughs> I, I don't begrudge them doing it if people feel that that's important and necessary. But I don't want to start a podcast or a blog or a vlog or sing parody songs with a ukulele or or try on all the crazy outfits I have at home um, or create characters. And, and I, like, I just I don't I do. That's my actual job. Yeah. So, yeah. so now that now that my job is put on hold, I'm I'm not interested in pumping out cr- creative content without it being quality content, and I don't want to try and retrofit live theater into online content because I don't think it translates very well usually, particularly um, if you don't have a lot of resources behind you to make it high quality in its recording or its or its transmission. Yeah, that was one thing I wanted to ask was maybe some of your thoughts on what you have seen streaming online and uh, and and any opinions you might have about um, how people are still trying to maintain some presence uh, in the social sphere. Well, I think that it's easier for um, some larger companies right now to continue to have a a maintainable, sustainable online presence. Um, a lot of larger companies are getting some um, great financial support from um, granting organizations in order to promote local artists or have people uh, create content for them. And I think that that's easier for larger companies to have a greater infrastructure and a greater, um, they can ask, they can make a greater ask from those funding bodies and get it. Um, it's affected the whole shutdown of, of everything has affected my particular company, Northern light theater in a very different way than it would be affecting some of the companies like the Citadel or Stratford or um, theater Calgary. Uh, we're affected on a, on a very different scale. Yeah. Um, give us a little bit of a sense of what kind of how, how different that scale is for Northern Light, say, compared to, you know, the Citadel or even maybe like the Opera or Theater Network or something like that. Well, I, I can't speak to other people's um, financials because they don't I, I, I shouldn't be talking about their money, but I can talk about about things that they're doing and, and I can talk about the kind of financial st- state that we're in. Um mm. I know that the Citadel has has left us left the set up for one of their shows, and that they're talking about um, uh, coming back to it, and that they will resume exactly where they left off. We didn't have the liberty of doing that because we rent in a public building the, in Fringe Theater Adventures, which has closed the building down. So, um, and we also rent that space, so w- the space would not be available to us um, at any time that that uh that it finally the building opens up it doesn't mean there's a space for us in it so we had to liquidate that show uh we lost a little bit of money we paid out our actors for the entirety of their contract even though we'd only rehearsed for a week and a half um but they got a five-week payout because we felt that that they needed that kind of money in order to sustain themselves over the next uncertain period um and and we believe in putting our our um, subcontractors first. So we paid them out. It meant that we took a small hit, but because we work on a shoestring budget all the time, um, 
we didn't take a huge hit that's going to knock our company out of commission. Um, and I think that that's the difference between small companies and big companies. Um, they're blessed in that they have lots more money than we do during the year to put on lots of shows and sink a lot of cash into their production values. Um, but when when we all have to close our shows down, their hit is much more substantial than ours is. So financially, we're not in a huge um, panic at all. Um, and in fact, if the Canada Council and some of the other funding bodies that have talked about potentially paying back what you've lost, we probably won't get paid back what we what we lost because it's really so minimal compared to some of the larger companies that have lost thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars, hundreds of thousands of mm-hmm. dollars. So yeah, and so so when you're talking about the the money that you've lost is essentially the box office that was left on that one last show correct. of the season. Correct. Mm. And then, and then of course, um, paying out our designers, uh, production costs like costumes and set pieces and things like that. But I think um, all in all, don't quote me on this, but I think, uh, I think we lost something somewhere between like three and six thousand dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, because yeah, it was it, every, all of your payments still happened and everything like that. You just didn't have the revenue from ticket sales coming absolutely. in. It's absolutely. Mm-hmm. Nope. Mm-hmm. That being said, we did, we we ended up saving some money because, you know, like then suddenly we didn't have to cater our opening night party. But I mean, that's minimal. Mm-hmm. Those kind of. Um, those did you end up saving a little bit on, did you end up saving a little bit on the, on the rental, I guess, of the venue? Cause you a- exited a couple of weeks, a few weeks early. I think we did. I think that, that, uh, I think that our, our venue people were kind enough to, uh, uh, yeah, let us out of that, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, well, give us a give us an idea of what the show was. This was Confessions of a Reluctant Caregiver, right? Oh, Fonda, it was so beautiful. Um, yeah, it's a beautiful show. I read it about uh, over 10 years ago. And at the time, I thought, oh, well, that's a nice show. And I sort of put it in a file somewhere and forgot about it for a while because it was a nice show. It didn't speak to me personally at the time. Um it's about a woman who it's based on the playwright's real life, a, a lovely woman um named um Mary Beekler. Um, she was an actress in LA and she was doing things like Frasier and um, Murphy Brown and things like that. <laughs> and uh, she was called back home to Oklahoma where her mother, who was a psychologist, had been uh, diagnosed with cancer. And she came home and she and her father had a contentious relationship and they battled a little bit over how to take care of their mother as she went into hospice and passed away in their home. And then the daughter, um, once the mother passed away, Mary went back to LA and immediately got called back because her father had contracted cancer. And so within a six month period, she lost both her parents and it really flip flops back and forth in time between uh, when the mother was alive and then when the mother is gone. And it's just a, a, once I read it now at 50 instead of at 40 um, and with my parents aging and their health declining and having to face mortality, um, it, I found it very, I found it so um, immediate uh, and emotional. Uh, I was very moved by it. And I mean, that's all I ever want in a play is something that moves me. I often choose work because it emotionally affects me. Um, 
And I also felt that it's it's a universal thing. Once you reach a certain age, I think you understand the panic of your mortality, your parents' mortality. And I think that everyone has a bit of guilt about going, am I a good enough person to actually sacrifice myself for the sake of someone else? Can I sacrifice my career, my happiness, my my quote life in order to take care of someone else. Yeah. Uh, you, you have a knack, I think for choosing plays that, um, that really deal with these very, um, very, very difficult personal issues. Um, and a lot of times the, the, the characters or the plays that you choose, the main characters, the main voices that we hear from are women. Um, and I just wanted to kind of, um, unpack a little bit of your, um, of your thoughts and your motivations around that. Sure. Um, I've always wanted to work on pieces that center women at the at the middle of them that that uh, that speak to the situation that women have in our world. Um, I think there are plenty of people that write very insightfully about women. Um, I think that I think that there is a difference in the way that women think. Essentially, I've said this before, and I mean, maybe I, maybe if I thought about it now, think, I think things are changing. But, but I do think that women and men's brains are wired differently, and that men are conditioned not to do any self-examination, not to do any internal, internal examination. And I think that women are much more um, open to that kind of thinking. They uh, acknowledge their emotional content and they uh, work through it and they exhibit it. And I think that men generally don't. I think my brain is wired more like a woman than like a, than like a typical man. I think I've always been sensitive. I've always been um, emotional. Um, and that may come from being a gay man, but um, I, I do think that, that I understand or have a deep sympathy or empathy towards the situation of women in our society. And I, uh, I always want to open that up to our audiences to discuss, to think about, to examine. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess future casting a little bit because you have released the, the next season for Northern light. Um, and it focuses a lot on, on older women, on older, uh, mature characters. So, um, yeah, tell us, tell us about the plans and like, and how is it going to (laughs) happen? Well, it's really interesting. Um, over the years I've looked at, I've looked at the coming trend in theater and, and in the world. And I, at one point I thought there needs to be more women. And so that was when I started working with the Unconscious Collective in like the mid '90s, and and we firmly said we want to make we want to create more work for women that tell women's stories. So that became a focus. Then later on, it became about I, wa- I really wanted to um, bring young people in. I wanted to give people. I remember being frustrated as a young artist, an emerging artist, because there was no emerging artist category when I was coming into the theater world. So 
so there were no grants, there were no specialty, no favors given to young people. And I, I felt like that wasn't necessarily fair. So I started working with a lot of young people and we had a newcomer in almost every show. There was somebody new making their debut. And then, and after that, it became a big deal to have emerging artists, um, recognized and, and, um, given a little leg up. Um, and then I remember at one point I said, why are, why is nobody casting like people of color? Why is that a big, deal and i wanted to put more people of color on our stage and i wanted to do colorblind casting and i wanted to cast people um from different cultures and ethnicities uh, and shapes and sizes on our stage and did that and and that was very well accepted and later on that became a thing so i just i i've looked at things and i said i think the next big trend is is to 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 recognize some of the debt that is owed to our our senior members of our community who aren't working right now because there is such a focus on young and emerging artists. And I think that it's to the detriment of some older actors who would love to still be working. And there's just a a dearth of roles for them. So especially older women, you play the grandma, you play the hag, uh, the crone, there's not much left. Um, And so I, I specifically chose four plays this season that re- that that would be played by women 50 or over uh, uh and i said i want to devote the entire season to that we've done a couple seasons that were all women uh so this is just another one and it's a big season because it's our 45th anniversary but i wanted to focus on what we're calling women of a certain age yeah that's fantastic i feel like you know i'm like i'm i'm a couple years away from 40 here trevor and i'm thinking oh. you know like i hope that the world doesn't forget about me <laughs> when i cross that threshold you know, what? you know what and that's another thing like that's the other thing is I, I hate to bring it up again, but as a gay man, I think lots of women uh, – it, it's interesting for me to feel um, uh, segregated uh, from women sometimes. And a lot of women have said, you don't understand you're a man. And I say, well, I do have I do have a, a, a kind of privilege in that I can puff myself up and I can lower my voice and I can fill up a room and I can take up male space if I want to. But I also – want to say, I know what it's like to feel unsafe on the street walking home at night. I know what it's like to be in a room full of straight men and feel uncomfortable and unsafe with the energy. I know what it's like to turn 40 and feel like you don't exist any longer because you're not sexually viable to people somehow. So it's interesting in in that sense that I think that's possibly my key into a lot of women's issues is that I go, I kind of get it. Mm-hmm. Have you ever had any, um, because a lot of the plays that you have done uh, in, in the past while have dealt with um, women's issues in, I'm thinking of, um, you know, abortion with uh, 13 weeks last year. Was it 13 weeks? weeks? No, 19. 19 weeks. That's what it's, thank you. <laughs> um, I don't, I don't know the gestational periods and things like that. You don't even know how long we've been in quarantine. Don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How long have we been in quarantine? 19 weeks, 6 weeks? I don't know. Everything is running together. Yeah. Um no, but with 19 weeks it was dealing with um like a late stage um abortion and and I know that there were a lot of feelings around that show. Um and I just wonder how um how you feel about um speaking, you know, as a man when those kinds of opinions come back at you and those 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 um those very like strong values um and especially with something so so difficult to talk about publicly. Well, I, think, I think with that particular show, 
I was, uh, we were, we did a co, it was a co-production with them, um, with Azimuth and, um, Vanessa, uh, Vanessa Sabrin, the fantastic actress who just gave a, oh God, I want to cry when I think about her mm-hmm. performance. Um, she, um, she, she's very intellectual and very smart. And I sat back and said, I don't know the answers to these, to lots of these questions that we're asking here. Um, I, I want to learn, I want to listen and I want to support. Um, and so that was a really, that, turned into a really great collaboration. Mm-hmm. I, I wholly re- so, so totally respected the women in the room on that project that I was able to say, I, I, I know I'm the, I'm the, I'm the one out of the loop here. I'm the one on the outside. Can I ask this question and will you help me understand? So it was, it was wholly collaborative for sure. Um, I, I, and also I I've very much tried to pick work that moves me emotionally, but doesn't um, it doesn't take a stand uh, on on any issue on one side or another of any issue. It opens up the subject for discussion, and I believe that everyone's opinion should be respected. So I think that that's why the work that. NLT has done in the past many years has been so um, has been so uh, beneficial to the success of the company is that I think we open things up for discussion without judgment. Um, we've done a lot of shows, a lot of shows in the last five or six years, lots of one woman shows about that ultimately come down to being about women and their place in religion in our society or what, what role religion plays in women's identities. And I've, I've made it really clear from the outset of each project and even, and from choosing the plays that, that I want the religion to be as respected as the individual uh, so that we're not making a judgment on it. Um, I always feel like every play that interests me is because the, the, the integral and and essential conflict in the play is always about the individual's um, responsibility to themselves to be who they are, to be what they want to be, to be what they feel, and versus their responsibility to others, to their families, to society, to um, propriety, to reputation, and that that's the biggest conflict. Do I do I choose to be a good person? Or do I choose to be a selfish person who does what I what I need, which is often cowardly and and weak? I think, um, and so that's the that's the the big push and pull that I always look for in plays, and that's what interests me in examining. And it's it's uncomfortable to play for an actor, and it's uncomfortable sometimes for audiences to watch. But I think it absolutely breaks down a wall. And has people go, if that character can talk about doing that embarrassing, shameful thing, then I can talk about it too. Because mm-hmm. I understand it. Yeah. Can can you give us a little a little taste of the shows that are in the next season and what we might have to look forward to <laughs> on the other side of on the other side of the yeah. pandemic? <laughs> yeah. The first show of the season is called um it's called 
The Oldest Profession by Paula Vogel. She's a feminist playwright from the States. She was made famous by um, How I Learned to Drive. Oh, yes, we know. <laughs> so, uh, so that was a risky kind of play. This is an earlier play of hers. It actually premiered in its um, original form at Theatre Network um, back in the 80s. And it is about um, five prostitutes who have relocated to New York City in the early 80s. And uh, it all takes place right on the it starts at the on the eve of Ronald Reagan being elected president and changing the um, economic system. And um, these women have all come from New Orleans where they were in a in a brothel together. And now they're set. They've set up shop. They're all in their 70s or 80s. And they have set up a business um, in some of the nursing homes in in uh, New York. And they're worried about the economic change, the economic downturn, and how uh, a lot of their clients are dying out or getting dementia or uh, getting ill. Um, They're worried about the stability of their jobs. Um, It sounds super serious and it's really, really funny. It's a little bit like Golden Girls were hookers. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So uh, it's it's interesting. It's not just about the the plight of sex workers. It's on a on a larger picture. It's about women's place in society, particularly using their own body as as commodity, as um, currency, and what happens when when you don't have that currency any longer. What do you have mm. to work with? Um, it's built on something called the five blackbirds principle, which are five blackbirds, five. Yeah. And it's, um, that means that the play starts off with all of them on stage. And as the play progresses, each scene, there's one of them gone because they've passed away. And, um, and so it's, it's, it's quite moving, I think. Um, but it's very, very funny. It's all told with a very light hand. Um, if if we end up doing it, it's going to be very stylized, and I'm quite excited about it. Um, and I have a fantastic group of actors, which is a joy. Women I've worked with before, and some that I never have, but I've always admired, who've been off the stage for a number of years. And I'm just thrilled to be gathering a group of positive women in their 60s, 70s to do this show. Um, brave women who um, trust me. I I just, I'm so blessed to have worked with so many women who really uh, trust me and say, I don't know how this will work, but I'm going to do it for you. I don't understand what you mean by that, but I trust that it will be it will it will work. I've I know you I know you'll make it happen. It's interesting that you're going into this next season with a focus on on um older older people and older characters. Um especially kind of even in light of the way that the pandemic is going now, there is such a focus on um you know how it how it really is affecting the older population a lot more. Um and yeah. how we're how everyone is sort of like being called now to pay attention um to especially the interactions that we are having um 
And, yeah. you know, like the access, access to homes and access to visitation and things like that. It's, um, I, it's, inter- it'll be kind of, uh, crazy on the other side of this. If we ever do get to the other side, um, you know, for a season of, of plays, um, dealing with older folks, you know, how, how it may be seen in a little bit different light after all this. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. For sure. Yeah. I'm, I, I hope that we get to do this show because I'm, I love the women in this cast so much and I would love to spend time with them, but I certainly of course can't, can't even think of, of doing it if we're not, if, if it's not safe to do because they're all women that I go, you're in the target, you're in the target area. I don't want to expose you to something horrible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anyone, anyone over 65 now is just kind of like, well, mom, do you need to go grocery shopping? Why don't you just let me do that for you? You know, about so many friends that whose parents are like sneaking out like teenagers. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That too. Uh, Not funny. I did laugh, but that's Mm -hmm. the second show is called um, the ugly duchess by Janet Munsell. And it's a project. I saw, I saw it on stage at the fringe about, Mm, almost 10 years ago, maybe. Um, Janet Munsell lives in Victoria. And she is a Canadian playwright who's who wrote a play about this woman called Margaret of Maltosh, uh, a real historical figure who owned a plot of land in uh, Europe somewhere. And um, it was a very advantageous plot of land to own. And so she had a lot of suitors, but she was also hideously ugly there's only one or two um paintings of her from the time or reproductions of her from the time period and um and they really make her look like a monster mm-hmm. uh, but people were uh men were up able to overlook that as her tragic flaw because they wanted her land and uh, she was sort of made out to be a villain politically um but it's a it's a one woman play, and it has only ever been performed by Janet Munsell's husband, um, in a very uh, well received and well toured production, which is what I saw. So um, Janet had actually um, sort of uh, retired the play and wasn't going to have it performed any longer, and I sent a message to her saying, remember that play I got from you like 10 years ago that I was interested in? I think I want to do it now. And she said, oh, okay. And I said, I think I want to use a woman. She said, I'm totally interested. I will pull it out and send it to you. So, um, so we booked that play. Um, and it is, it's a really fascinating, poetic, beautiful piece about a woman who um, has a beautiful soul and understands that people aren't getting past her outward looks um and she keeps saying if if they could only see the inside of me if the, and i if i'm good and i'm kind as a ruler then they'll love me and um and she keeps getting sort of manipulated and used by by men for political and financial purposes until it can't help but uh batter her ego to a point where she says if that's the monster they think I am, then that's the monster I'll be. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I know. What were you expecting? <laughs> expecting a happy ending at Northern Light? <laughs> <laughs> I really love plays that don't end happy because for me, and I don't mean to sound like a victim, but for me, 
I'm not happy. My life isn't happy. My life will not end happy, I don't think. And I think that to I know that everyone goes in times like this, you need a comedy. You need a comedy in the spring. People want something light. They want to take their mind off. I go, no, I'm good with actually. I think a lot of people take comfort in going, oh, not everyone's life is happy. I don't have to feel weird about mine not being happy. I can see that that is something other people have in common with me. I'm not wrong. There's nothing wrong with me. Yeah, I think I do think that people take comfort in that. I know I certainly do. I like going through, you know, um, bouts of different different levels of mental health uh, over yeah. the years and things like oh, that. Like it is it is nice to kind of just sit and wallow in a show. <laughs> Which is, which, um, is, which is no slam against other theaters that do that kind of work. I think that that is wonderful and fun. And I like to have a good laugh, too. And I think that that's what makes the theater ecology in our community so great, is that it is um, widespread and varied across the board. But I do feel that that has become the niche market of the work that we do at Northern Light Theater. I think it was it was dark to begin with before I took over. I think that anything that we do always has a a, a, a little bit of comedy in it. But I but that's to my taste as well. That it mm-hmm. that it I don't mind being dark. I don't mind I don't mind walking out of a show. Uh, I don't mind walking out and see, and people have, you know crying or being emotionally moved by it. One of my favorite things is we had a board president for a while who said, "Oh my god." I feel sick to my stomach when I see your shows. <laughs> I said, oh, I'm sorry. She said, no, it's good. It just feels like I've been punched. Mm. <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah, okay. my favorite thing. My favorite. Yeah. Yeah. My favorite thing is when I leave when I leave a show and I just go to the car and cry. You know, that's yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's a thing well, that happens. Me, I always it always feels a little bit like that. Oh, I think this milk is compad. Try it. You know, it feels like that. <laughs> let's maybe let's let's maybe take this opportunity to shift gears a little bit because I do want to talk to you about the fringe because you have a habit of doing I don't know maybe like twelve to fourteen fringe shows every oh, every no, year. No, no, no. No, one year I did one year I think I did nine, and that year just about fucking killed me. Um, mm-hmm. But I did end up with a lot of money that year. Um, no, I, d- I, in fact, in the last few years, I felt like I've really cut back on how many shows I do. Like now I think, I think last year I worked on three. Um, mm-hmm. And it doesn't feel if, if I was only directing one and only acting in one and only writing another, that would be like totally fine. But last summer I like wrote, directed and acted in one. I directed designed and and uh edited the other one. Oh, I designed that first one too and then the third one i did the design the direction and the writing so it's like multiple tasks it's the multitasking that kills me not the number of shows Mm, right, right. But um, I mean, for you, you said, you know, like you, you, you can make a lot of money at the fringe if you know how to multitask like that. So yeah. what is it, you know, like, and now that the fringe is shut down, um, th- does that have significant impact for you? Um, no, because I'm such a sucker, like I'm such a soft touch, that when I do a show for another company, and I write it, and I design it, and I direct it, I take one cut. So it's not like I get mm-hmm. paid extra for doing the extra things. I just want to do them because I want to help the gang. I want to be a team member. So um, but I, I'm, I am sad. It's one of the only times I get to perform during the year. And I, I thought we had a really 
um, exciting project for this summer. I work with Guys in Disguise with Darren over the summer, and we have a really great concept and most of the script written. And I was really looking forward to being on stage with um, Jake Kutchik and Jason Hardwick this summer. The three of us were going to be on stage, and Darren was going to stage manage. And it was a really excellent concept, and I was looking forward to it. So I'm sad that that won't happen. Yeah, and often those shows, you know, they they do have a happier, like, nicer endings. Like, Flora and Fauna has nice endings. (laughs) I don't know. We don't have a lot of happy endings there either. I mean, I think there's so much funny beforehand. We work on a con, we work on this structure that we call like the, the sucker punch. So we start off, everyone comes going, Oh, it's guys in disguise. It's men in dresses. That'll be funny. And then we go funny, funny, funny. And we hit them with crude, funny, funny, funny. And then suddenly it turns and it gets serious. And they, and people start to go, Oh, this is actually about the suppression of women in the fifties, or this is about the idea of the domestic housewife and how, um, repressive that is and the the twist happens and people go oh and then it becomes quite emotional like uh, puck bunnies ended badly uh prepare for the worst ended badly um don't frown at the gown ended sadly like uh, i i it's so funny when people for for you to say you know they're kind of happy because i'm crying at the end of all those shows Except for bitch slap, doesn't don't you doesn't Betty kind of win in bitch slap? Like no, they both kind of lose. They realize yeah, that everybody everybody after, loses. I mean, after all this time, we could have been friends. Yeah, everyone is sad there. So, um, but I think that that's I think that that's the secret to why those plays have been successful is that I think our audience base for those shows is that people that come in wanting to see a man in a dress, that's going to be comedy. They come in from the suburbs and out of town. And then there's this sucker punch that, that makes them think about a bigger sociological um, issue, a bigger idea about femininity and womanhood and masculinity in our society. And, um, and I, I think that those plays, Darren and I talk about it quite a bit. We think that our plays would stand up quite well for to be played by women. But there is also a real meta-theatrical uh, idea about them being played by men. We play a lot of oppressed women, women who, who um, are getting an inkling about patriarchal influence. Yeah. I mean, would would do you think that there will be content that comes from the pandemic sort of like with, with say guys in disguise with like what you're what, with what you would be working on? No. Um I feel like I feel like this is actually a fairly traumatic event for many people. And I don't want to see a play about people in quarantine after this. I don't think that will be um, something that we would explore unless it was somehow removed from the contemporary. Um, uh, maybe do something about women in quarantine during the like um, during like the Crusades, but I certainly wouldn't see a, and that would be a an allusion to to quarantine. But I I certainly don't want to watch a play about about COVID nineteen. Um, mm. And I also feel like that's a little too on the nose and a little too low hanging fruit right now. Everyone can yeah. do those things. And it's, it's not of interest to me. I want, 
I, I don't want something that's so current that by the time it's on, it's over. It's dated by the time you're presenting it. Uh, I don't think this is, this is a little bit like the Holocaust. I don't think people are going to want to come back to it um, as a source of entertainment later. And by the way, I'm not, I'm not comparing this on a global scale to the atrocity of the Holocaust. Sorry. I'm not trying to, be, um, <laughs> I'm not trying to equate them. They're definitely different, but, but it, it, in, in the same kind of sense that I don't think people are going to see a lot of comedy in this for a long time. It's interesting too, how many people are saying like, I wonder if we'll, if we'll ever get to be holding hands or putting our arms, hugging each other or blah, blah, blah. And I think I've been around long enough to know that we forget really quickly about things like this. We forget and we will go back to the way things were things. I don't think things will um, so dramatically change that we'll never get to sit in a group in a room um, or we'll never get to spend time with our families again. I don't think this is life forever. It feels like it so far, but it <laughs> won't be. I mean, it won't be. Um, and there are people in our lives that are still alive that have gone through worse things than this in the Second World War and, um, you know, that kind of stuff. And there are people in other parts of the world that are going through much worse than we are right now. So this is an inconvenience at at best mm. at worst it is nice in a lot of ways to take a pause i think oh, that I the city in edmonton in particular we have this really really high level of like a high amount of production for the, um you know for the size that we are and it's you know it, it it is interesting to kind of see like how even stuff online is sort of starting like separating out and yeah. um yeah like the the pause i think is is it does have value in a way yeah i i really desperately did not want to uh knee jerk reaction create content for online um i don't want to i don't want to work retrofitting something that i've already done so that i can get it online um if i'm going to do online content it's going to be specifically because that is the best platform for what i want to say or do and and for me that means i need to think about that for a long time that needs to formulate i can't just reach into my drawer of unfinished projects and pull something out and retrofit it because i need to be out there with everybody else and and quite frankly i don't think online work is going to save i'm using my air quotation marks save live theater um i i just don't think that that's the way it's going to happen like at Northern Light Theater, we people have said, well, why don't you just film one of your performances? And it's like, because a camera at the back of the house is a really crappy copy of a recording. Mm -hmm. um, so if you want, if I wanted to put quality work, quality, a quality recording of my work that I'm proud of, it's going to take more than one camera. It's going to take microphones. It's going to take multiple camera angles. And then it's going to take editing. And that all takes money that we don't have. Taproot Edmonton is a source of curiosity-driven stories about our city cultivated by the community. In addition to their weekly roundups on local topics like media, city council, food, 
business, music, and arts, there's now a special page on COVID-19 in Edmonton where the community can ask questions about Edmonton's response to and experience of the pandemic with a running list of answers curated from reliable sources. You can sign up to become a member and get more info at taprootedmonton.ca. This episode of I Don't Get It is brought to you by The Loop, a new podcast from CBC Edmonton. Host Tara McCarthy of Edmonton AM takes you behind the scenes every week, sharing the details that don't make it into a typical radio or TV story. There's always more to the story and more to learn about our city. That's what The Loop is for. A recent episode explores what it means to visit other people's homes during the pandemic, a historic week for oil prices, and you'll hear about a summer staple that is officially cancelled due to COVID-19. Find The Loop on the CBC Listen app or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find it online at cbc.ca slash Edmonton. Alrighty, so some bits of Edmonton arts news this week. Uh, International Dance Day is coming up on April 29th, and Mile Zero Dance is running a three-hour dance blitz uh, from 6 to 9 p.m. local time on the big day. The evening will feature short pieces. They're no longer than three minutes each uh, by dancers from Edmonton and across the country. And I hear word is that the Yukon Bangra sensation Gurdip Pandher will make an appearance. Uh, You may have seen the viral video of him dancing dancing to the bagpipes uh, earlier this month. Um, But actually, all of his videos are really um, lovely and great. If there's one kind of dance that makes me just happy, uh, it's it's Bangra. Um, So we'll share his YouTube channel in our show notes as well. Um, Also here in Edmonton, the Free Will Shakespeare Festival announced its new artistic director, Dave Horak, who has been responsible for several gems in recent seasons. I'm thinking of shows like Fun Home and The Skin of Our Teeth um, and Every Brilliant Thing, which I've gushed about for a while now, was so brilliant. Uh, Horak will kick off Free Will's 2021 season, directing Much Ado About Nothing. In uh, in the press release, he's wearing a Ramones t-shirt. So take that as you will. (laughs) Uh, Also speaking of Shakespeare, um, a little further afield, Stratford Festival has launched the online Shakespeare on Film Festival. Uh, It's running in four curated sections, um, and these curated themes resonate, are supposed to, uh, resonate with pandemic times. So the themes are social order, isolation, minds pushed to the edge, and relationships. Um, so you can think of the Shakespeare plays that you know and think of which theme they would fall under uh, and, you know, play that little game with yourself. Then check the Stratford website, um, which we will also share uh, in the show notes to see if you win. <laughs> um, the streams have started already. They started on Shakespeare's birthday, which was April 23rd. And they will run throughout July. So again, uh, listings-wise, there's nothing happening live, but there are a number of things you can watch online. We did mention Taproot earlier, and there is an arts roundup written by yours truly every week that you can get delivered to your inbox. Um, It comes out on Thursdays. And in that roundup, we've been keeping a running list of a bunch of things that you can see online, local and otherwise. Um, So definitely check that out um, if, if you feel so inclined. And if you know about something from local performers or companies that we should give a shout out to, please let us know. You can find out how to contact us at our website, I don't get it, yeg.com. And uh, also in the show notes, again, we will have links to Northern Light Theater's website. Thank you again so much to Trevor Schmidt for, for chatting with me this week. Um, you made me laugh and feel better uh, about all of this isolation. 
So yeah. All right, everyone, go see some shows from the safety of your home Wi-Fi. Uh, and if you can, send those artists a donation. They sure could use it. Bye. I Don't Get It is a member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or check us out on albertapodcastnetwork.com or the CKUA radio app. I Don't Get It is recorded on Treaty 6 territory in Edmonton, Alberta, in the Edmonton Community Foundation's podcast studio. Our theme music is Mountain Time by Ghibli, and you can find more of Ghibli's music by going to ghibli.bandcamp.com. I Don't Get It is produced by Andrew Paul, Fonda Mithrush, and Paul Blinov. Sit here thinking,